2: what which this that or the other from bonnaroo to coachella traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky that's where we come in with high fives for everyone
0: the what podcast with brad barry lord taco dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in brooklyn where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami.
1: Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga times Free Press, covering all aspects of the entertainment industry since 1987. That's before you were born.
0: Lord
2: Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website at whatpodcast.com work. Also really good at identifying babies
1: Have you ever wanted a McGruber action figure, or one for Weezer's Rivers Cuomo? Or Wilson, the tennis ball in the Tom Hanks film Castaway? For the past few years, musician and comedian Nick LaValle has been making these cool and custom toys under the name Wicked Joyful, sometimes going to such absurd levels as Eminem's Mom Spaghetti or the Coffee Cup in Game of Thrones. And they are amazing and become quite popular. But lo and behold, before Nick ever made a toy, before he ever gone on stage and told jokes, he played ska music. So I met Nick in
3: 1998. We played a show together at Merrimack College. And I just remember I was setting up my merch and this super friendly guy was also setting up a merch table. And I think he just offered me a t-shirt for his band that was called Five Bucks. So it had the Atari logo. It was a navy blue shirt with the Atari logo. And he's like, what size shirt do you wear? And I was like a large. And he's like, oh, I'm all a large. How about a medium? And so I squeezed (laughs) my tall, skinny body into a medium shirt at the time. That kind of, for me, started the like tight shirt and baggy pants thing.
1: You didn't know him at all? He just offered you a shirt?
3: I didn't know him at all. I didn't know him from anybody. And then I got to see his band play. They were fine. They weren't like mind blowing, but his stage presence, his ability to like Command an audience. He was so funny and so
1: charismatic on stage. It was great. And so he's led an interesting life since his Scott punk days as a comedian, and now he makes toys. Yeah. I mean, he's been staying busy. I mean, I haven't seen, gosh, I haven't seen Nick in
3: person in years, but every time he pops back into my life online, he's doing something amazing.
1: Let's talk about Wicked Joyful, how that came about, and, and everything that was happening around that.
2: I started Wicked Joyful in uh January of twenty nineteen. Um, just uh I was tired of stand up. I was just sort of uh I, I produce a weekly show in my hometown and we've brought in great comedians, Kyle Canaan, Brody the late great Brody Stevens, uh Doug Stanhope, Sam Jay, uh a lot of Dan Soder, a lot of comics who now who are either already legends or now like on their way just like to having great careers. And, and, um, I loved producing the show, but I was tired of, um, the grind of like being a weekend warrior and just doing these like, you know, sometimes great gigs, sometimes hell gigs on the weekends. And I was just drained from doing stand up. And I had just started following some other artists who did like bootleg toy type stuff, like my friend, uh, Zach from hands of doom and Daniel Brown and just following other artists. And I was like, I bought a couple of their works and I was like, damn, I can do this. I want to do this. So I started doing it. And then, uh, just creating these like custom action figures, complete in packaging. And it took off. Um, Adam Goldberg, the producer of the Goldbergs, he bought three pieces from me and then like uh, a bunch of other people just like would reach out to me. And then I did a, uh, a Christmas gift for, Uh, James Valentine, the guitar player from Maroon Five, and then um, I did a the the one that really kind of went viral and really helped me make a name for myself, uh, or make a name for Wicked Joyful, I should say. Was I did a Bill Burr's character in The Mandalorian, so I did a Mayfeld, but it was like fucking Star Wars, (laughs) (laughs) and like he came packaged like complete with like. a Dunkin Donuts cup and a Blasta. So like that took off and then like the Boston Globe did an article on me and then things just sort of snowballed and the attention's great and the quote-unquote success I've had from it is awesome but the most important part of it is it it brings me so much happiness and creating the these pieces of art um the meditative state I kind of find myself in when i'm painting them or like you know using the dremel tool to like uh sculpt these repurpose action figures just just mellows me out and i think uh part of it's like soothes my ocd and uh it's just relaxing and it's something i can do on my own schedule uh i don't have to drive anywhere and it's brought me so much happiness and just about I'm meeting the, the nicest, sweetest people and it's the opposite of what had become of stand up. So I just love it. And, uh, I, I just, I don't want it to end. I just want to keep doing it and building this, this great group of people I'm connecting with through it and, um, other artists and just very kind people. The messages I get are just so kind and sweet. Um, feels good man it feels good especially it's felt good especially this past year so the other pieces i've made you know if you go on the instagram at wicked joyful you'll see I, i've made a. uh it's all things i like so if like you're looking at my page like you know we opened this up i talk about the carolyn rose figure the reason why i made carolyn rose is because i love her music i think she's an amazing talent so it's like i had to make her i made uh Blank Man, <laughs> you know, it's like I made a Blank Man <laughs> figure. I made a I made a Chris Farley, Patrick Swayze two pack from the SNL Chippendale sketch. You know, these are just like things I love, and I'm just gonna keep doing it. And uh, I think that, and I think like the way that it looks connects with people because it's just so nostalgic. Like everything about it's nostalgic, and making figures for things or people that would otherwise n- never end up on a shelf in Target or whatever, it's just like very funny.
1: I like how some of them are very much like you are taking a very niche culture thing and making action figures, but some of them are like so funny, like Eminem's mom's spaghetti.
2: That one blew up. That's gotten me a lot of attention. There's certain things I can't talk about that piece. I like got not allowed to, um, but it's awesome. And I also hope it all comes to fruition. Um I had an awesome phone call last week, so we'll see what happens. But yeah, the Eminem one that just blew up. And the reason why I did that, honestly, I had a bad day. I just had a really hard day uh, and a stressful week. And I just did that to make me laugh. And like, it resonated (laughs) with, I couldn't believe it. Like I just did it. Like I have a buddy who lives in my house and like he came out of his room and he's in my kitchen, in the kitchen. And he's watching me make the tiniest amount of pasta. And he goes, he goes, and he kind of looked at me. He's like, what are you, what are you doing? And I said, look, and I pointed at the card art on the counter. And then like, he just said, wait, are you putting the pot, the spaghetti in the bubble? And I was like, yes. And he just like lost it laughing. And he was like, dude, that's the funniest thing you've ever done. And I was like, I, I'm just sad. <laughs> I was like, I'm just sad. It makes you happy. And he was like, dude, it's the funniest thing. And like, he was like losing it. And then I posted it, and then I've never seen anything I've posted like get that many likes like so quickly. And I woke up the next day to like so many shares and then I looked at my TikTok and the Wicked Joyful TikTok account had like gained like four thousand followers overnight, and that Mama spaghetti's been seen one point two million times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like it's like, you know what so the most fucked up part about it is like I've been playing music and doing stand-up, for literally just a bit more than half of my existence on this planet. And the thing that's going to get me noticed is bomb spaghetti and an action figure bubble. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, that's the thing. Like, okay, but you know what? I'm here for it.
1: I just want to make sure I understand and you know, for people listening to understand. So you make one of these, right? And then you post them and then you sell like the one
2: you nailed it so like when i started out i would i would you know i I repurpose action figures i i sculpt them with a dremel tool i take parts from you know i'm kind of like the i'm the i'm sid from toy story i'm the bully next door with a massive amount of like action figure parts and i'm like making them my own um but uh i was making one-offs and selling one-offs and then um I had just started to just a couple months ago. I took a week off from my day job because I was like, okay, I was stressed out. I was like, I got to take a week off from work, found the window to take a week off. And I learned how to make molds. So now it's like I can make one and then I cast a mold and then I pour resin to make multiples of that figure. But I don't make more than say 12. Usually I, I keep two for myself and then I'll sell 10. And I'll make sure that each action figure is slightly different so that they're still very much one of a kind. The first one I did with that, uh, in that style was, uh, MacGruber. So I made, you know, Will Forte as MacGruber and, uh, will actually bought three of them, which was awesome. And he sent me a super nice message and, you know, it's, it, it's been so rad, man. And like, it's, It's not a matter of, I think any creative or any person, like, of course, it's super cool when, like, Will Forte reaches out to you and, like, wants to buy your art. At the same time, yes, I'm bragging, you know, I've kissed Sally Struthers on the lip, so who the fuck is Will Forte? Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, this is a joke, uh, but um, it's it's, like, super cool when, like, you know, a celeb or like an artist you admire, comedian you admire, like reaches out and is like, Hey, I like your stuff, wanna buy it. That's obviously super cool. But the best part about any of this is just like the amount of people who just like message me and are like, dude, you you crack me up. You make me laugh so much. Like your stuff makes me laugh. Like, you know, getting get you know, someone who buys a shirt and then like two months later they buy a sticker and they message me and like, I'm a lifelong customer. Keep making shit. And it's like, okay, cool. Like that's what I that's what I like most about Wicked joyful is I'm building community, um and it's and it's through like you know like Adam Adam knew me when I was 19, 20 years old. Like now I'm like 42, and it's like I'm still doing dope shit. Like maybe in a way, like I can mature emotionally and mentally, but a good chunk of me, the best parts of me, can stay 15 years old forever because it's not going to offend anyone. It's just going to make it's just going to bring people happiness.
1: When I was in my 20s and I had like my, my anxiety was much worse back then, I found like great peace in just drawing like that. I felt like that was probably the most peaceful point in my life is when I would just sit and draw with no intention in mind. As somebody with OCD and stuff, can you speak a little bit more on that experience? Do you find all your thoughts just kind of disappear
2: when you're working? That's exactly what I meant when I had said earlier, like how it brings me to this like meditative state where I'm I'm working on a figure, uh, whether I'm using the Dremel tool or whether I'm painting it, it brings me to this, like, just this zone of focus where it's just that one thing and I can be left alone with that. And even if there's, like, a movie playing in the background or, like, music playing in the background, it, like, kind of disappears. Does that make sense? Like, it kind of, like... It just sort of like, the best way to describe it is, you know, if you were at like a house party and you met someone that you really connected with and you just start talking to her and like everyone else's conversation just sort of goes away and you're just like zoned in on this one person that you're attracted to. And also like your personalities are meshing and like you're, you got a little bit of butterflies in your stomach. Like it's almost that. It's almost that. Um, So it just feels very good. And it's like my little escape. And I wish I had even more time to do it. But I've just been so out straight. And like, but someone recently told me, they said that they like that I don't post. Like, I I think on average, I, I probably post like once a week with Wicked Joyful. But someone said they like that because they know that when I do post, like it feels special. Like, I'm not just posting to post.
1: Yeah, you have quality content to post.
2: Yeah. I think the craziest thing before the M&M stuff happened, the craziest thing that had happened this year was um, Robert Rodriguez, the director, his assistant reached out to me, and they commissioned me to make – he commissioned me – Robert commissioned me to make a piece for him.
1: Can you talk about what that piece is?
2: Yeah, that one I can talk about because it's him. It's posted on, on the Wicked Joyful Instagram. And if you go to uh, WickedJoyful.com, you can find all my links, like all my links pop up. Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, my shop, all that stuff. Just go to WickedJoyful.com. But uh, this, the Mandal- Roberts Mandalorian piece, it's like him with a guitar with a uh, Baby Yoda, Grogu, above him. <laughs> and like the card art is him with, you know serenading um grogu with his uh guitar the thing i can't talk about which one day i can't wait to be able to say it or if this person posted on their own i made um i made a second variant of the bill burr action figure and instead of him coming um being included with the duncan's cup he included a blaster and a fucking sam adams dude so he had like a bottle of sam adams And I made five of those. I kept one for myself. I gifted one to this awesome YouTuber, great guy, Hello, Greedo. I gifted him one, and then I sold three. The first two sold, like, instantly. And then the other one stayed in the shop for maybe seven or eight minutes. And then it was purchased by someone very close to the production of The Mandalorian. But Mm -hmm. I cannot say who but it blew my fucking mind. (laughs) It was like, what? No way. And then like, I had to Google the name and then like, I was like, well that checks out. But, and then I looked at the PayPal receipt and I was like, Oh my God. You know, I was like, that is crazy. But that person hasn't, it hasn't been shared. That person who bought it, it hasn't shared it on social media. But Robert's assistant did confirm that there are people on the Mandalorian that follow my shit, that like my stuff. So I was like, okay, because that's how they discovered me for to make the one for him. So
3: They need to make you a character in season three. Come on.
2: Dude, I'll tell you right now. If I <sighs> – someone was like – someone said something, you know uh, – man if if i was in the background of us anything if i was a star wars canon i think um i think i could retire from like every i don't mean like monetarily financially i'm saying like i think like i i i, I might be able to stop creative endeavors i could just be like yeah i'm part of star wars canon like what else could i possibly do
3: yeah that'd be amazing
2: like, like you know would it be it would it would definitely surpass making out with sally struthers by a lot um but yeah if i if they were just like hey nick we love your action figures we just thought it'd be super funny if like you were in the background of the scene i I'd, I'd, oh man that would just that that would
1: what they need to do is they need to make you have to be a character that makes toys or something like that in the star wars universe
2: let's get it going like wicked joyful uh, what would be the hashtag we need a hashtag <laughs> Nick Formando, <laughs> or like wicked joyful, yeah. You know, Nick Formando,
1: or like Nick Formando. I think that's it, right there. Nick Formando,
2: Nick, and then the number four, and then Mando. Yeah, Nick Formando. Let's do it.
3: Growing up, what was your favorite Star Wars action figure?
2: Oh, dude, I um, I just remember having uh, Return of the Jedi R two D two, uh huh, and actually me and uh, the late. Jack Lazardo and Dave Lazardo back in 98, um we went to a Star Wars convention. This was Episode 1 era. And uh I bought a mint on card Return of the Jedi R2D2 and I still have it mint on the, in the box. Cuz that was like the actual the one I remembered having when I was a kid. So it was definitely that one. Which probably doesn't sound cool. Like cool would be like, yeah, I had Boba Fett and I had uh Greedo and Han Solo and but I I just always like the droids, man. I like the friendship between uh, C three PO and R two D two. I just always like that.
3: Yeah, I I love your um, Boba Fett uh, like art mashup, the banana on the wall.
2: banana Fett,
3: (laughs) (laughs) set at a funny angle.
2: Yeah, that's a vintage. um, That was a vintage Boba Fett action figure um, that I casted a mold poured just yellow resin and then duct taped it to the back of the card art to look like that art installation with the banana that was taped to the wall. So it was just bow banana fat. <laughs> <laughs> I made 12 of those two are in comic book shops here in New Hampshire. And then the rest sold. That was a fun one. I definitely have more ideas for like star Wars mashups. I did, the other one I did. I did a he Mandalorian.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah.
2: So it was like He-Man body with uh, Mando's helmet. That's a really good one
1: too. I know you have Sugar Ray and you have River from Cuomo from Weezer. Yes. Where's the Mighty Mighty
2: Boss Tones? Dude, I'm going to be super honest with you. And I'm also giving away something right now. So I started making a Ben Carr. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, shit, this doesn't look like Ben Carr. This looks like Niles Crane from Fraser. (laughs) (laughs) So, a figure I'm posting relatively soon, or by the time this is available, this podcast available, it'll probably already be there. I'm going to be making a limited run of Niles Crane. It will include tossed salad and scrambled eggs, (laughs) (laughs) as heard in the Fraser theme. And that figure was originally supposed to be Ben Carr from the Boston's. All right. So I'll make one soon. Maybe uh when this airs, maybe to announce that I'm on the show I'll I will have posted a ska related figure. How about that?
1: That'll be amazing. Okay. I,
2: I think that you need to do that. I just bought I bought your book, Aaron.
1: I saw the message, yeah.
2: I'm Scott for life, man. Yeah, I have a couple ska related action figures in my mind, aside from the on one, but um Oh, do you? Okay. Yes. Yep.
1: Do you wanna share or do you are you keeping that in the are you keeping that in the vault? Nah I'm I already gave away
2: too much with with Frazier slash Ben Carr. <laughs> true, true. That was the other. That's the other thing. Like, why I wanted to make a Ben Carr figure is because I don't like people calling him the dancing guy. It's like he has a name. It's Benjamin Carr. The dude's a legend, and most people know this. Like, he was the Boston's like road manager, and uh, this was. I remember when we did the show, especially in Hartford. Like him setting up this laptop, and this was—I don't even know if Wi-Fi was wi Did Wi-Fi exist in two thousand three? Like I don't—I don't know.
3: <laughs> he might have just had a cable that he was running. I him.
2: just yeah, I just remember him like like I just remember him in the green room at the uh, Webster Theater. Like he had this like big chunky laptop, and like I'm pretty sure he was like running a dial-up cable like somewhere to like do band work. But it's funny, like, watching that dude in a green room on this chunky laptop and, like, running a cable to a modem or maybe an Ethernet cable to a cable modem. I don't know. But it's funny, like, watching that dude, like, do his, like, business and, like, work. And then, like, you know, three hours later, he's just, like, on stage doing the Ben Benkar dances, you know? The dudes are like, they're the, they're the best, man. Like, there's a lot of great, I mean, there's a lot of great ska punk bands. Like, they're kind of like my ska punk band, right? Because, like, this is where I grew up. And they've always, they're one of those, I was having this conversation t- tonight. I was at um, my band's rehearsal space with uh my bandmate, Tristan. We were like putting the seven inches like in the sleeve and uh, for the new Donaher EP. And I was just like, we're talking about music. I was telling them I was doing this podcast. And I just said to Tristan, I was like, dude, there are some things in life that are just a constant and it feels so nice. You know, it's like, The Bostones have always been there. Um, uh, Weezer, the Smoking Popes, the Muffs, they've always been there since I was like 15 years old. And I'm 42 and I still love these things. And, you know, some people might say, am I a man child? Um, I mean, I'm responsible I have a home, I have a career. I but these are the things I love and they make me it's like why would I be embarrassed by it? Why would I be embarrassed by listening to ska? Like why would I be embarrassed by any of these things that are so healthy for us emotionally and mentally? Like it's just it, we're we're so lucky, man. <laughs> like we're so lucky to have these things. Adam, what? What else do you remember about the scene when you came out to Boston for those couple tours that we hooked up with or like we played together?
3: I always wondered what happened to Kicked in the Head. They were amazing.
2: Dude, they were so good.
3: Did you play that house show with us and them? Uh, probably. Like, all I remember is during the first song, the singer like climbing up on the bass drum and like, I just remember like I'd seen them before and they were good and they had yeah. taken it to a whole nother level where I was like, what the fuck is happening?
2: We played a lot of shows of kicked in the head, a lot of shows, with Big D, but um, just as many, if not more shows of kicked in the head. And those dudes like were fucking amazing. Uh, if anyone's looking for like, a re- if anyone wants to listen to a record that like, like fall in love with a record that they never knew existed. Like, go ahead, find Kicked in the Head, Thick as Thieves. The album is so killer, and all the songs are, every song is good. The production is amazing. They recorded it at the Outpost, where the Dropkicks did a lot of their earlier records. Um, Gary Hedricks, the singer, Antony Modano on drums, Matt Sanaki on guitar, Ryan Dowd on bass. Those guys were like brothers to me. Um, You know, we were at each other's weddings. They were there for my divorce they <laughs> they were just they were just such a sick band, their earlier stuff was odd, like the ska portion of their earlier records was definitely heavily influenced their route was like definitely more like fishbone um but they really found their groove with the thickest seas record like you hear the fishbone stuff on some tracks a good starting track would be fix my sink um but then they. Um, they've also found this like, their own version of like, I don't want to say like street punk, but it's just like driving kind of alternative rock and like this cool mid-tempo version of punk. It's the best way to describe it. And Gary's voice is incredible. And uh, him and Ryan Dowd did great harmonies and they um they played a bunch of shows and then uh they were they had a van accident which I think kind of oh yeah that'll do it th- they flipped the van I think that kind of changed some of the trajectory of how they felt about you know what they were doing where they were going I don't know for sure but just you know life changed Gary ended up having a kid um, now he's uh, married to he's married and has two other kids from uh, his n- now wife Lily um, so it just life happened you know. And they're all kind of married now, uh for the most part, except Matt. And um they they did a reunion show. Actually it was really cool. Uh two years ago they did a reunion show and um they sold out two nights at a uh Great Scott in Alston Mass. And um I Donna my band Donaher got to open that. And then the following fall, Donaher opened up the Big D and the Kids Table annual Halloween show. So it was like I was just like that, that, that year it was like, I got to relive that part of my life, you know, with, uh, with my new band, which was very sweet. But, um, man, I, I, I loved kicked in the head and they, they, they had, they put on like one of the best shows from that era. They were just insane. Like you said, Adam, um, Gary would like jump on the bass drum and, He was all over the place. The dude had more energy than anyone in the scene during that time. Yeah,
1: definitely. All right. So, Carolyn Rose, did you just make an action figure on your own, or was there what inspired it?
2: Okay, so you know, when the just before the pandemic hit, um, I had been turned on to uh, Carolyn Rose's music um, by a friend of mine, and I just thought it was like. The most amazing record, and like then I went and I went to, back to her album "Loner," and I was like, "Oh my god, this person is amazing!" And I thought to myself, like, "She's gonna blow up. Like, 2020 is gonna be her year." I can't wait to like watch this career skyrocket. She's so unique, etc. And then the pandemic happened, and like you know, her record come out. She was on Seth Meyers. Pandemic happens, and her tour's canceled and if there was anyone that was going to have a fantastic 2020 i'm convinced it was carolyn rose and everyone should go check out her album and i just i i kind of just fell in love with her entire vibe so you know i make custom action figures under the moniker wicked joyful and i was like i need to make her an action figure so i did i posted it she loved it and like she was so taken back by it and um so then we end up just like following each other and you know she follows my weird action figure stuff i listen to her music and love it and uh her mom follows me on twitter too which is really funny does her mom ever comment on the posts or uh so she'll like posts um for sure okay. and uh <laughs> what i thought was so sweet was like carolyn rose has re- reposted the action figure i made for her and she was like, This is the best thing to happen to me all year. And I was like, Wow, that's really sweet. Cause like I think discovering her was one of the highlights of my twenty twenty. So man, I just love music and I love I love uh discovering new artists. I do, I love discovering younger artists and like music keeps you young, you know, like never stop discovering new.
1: What did you choose in order to represent Carolyn? Like what outfit or what look or whatever, and why did you choose that?
2: Oh, it was the, um, it had, well, number one, she almost always just wears red, right? <laughs> so, yeah,
1: yeah.
2: um, it was the, uh, feel the way I want. She's got this music video for the song. Yeah. It's like a disco song. Kind of a disco song. And she's like dancing throughout like the entire country. And she's wearing, um, this outfit where it's like this long red, like blazer matching red pants, baseball cap. So that's the Carolyn Rose outfit I, I did. Very nice. You know, it's funny. I I just said like music keeps you young. Never stop discovering new. And we're probably gonna talk about nineties ska like for the next forty five minutes or whatever. (laughs) As I'm wearing like a Boston shirt and like, you know. Oh, nice. I just assembled five hundred, you know, seven inches of my band's new EP, which the cover of it is a picture of. Teenage me in the nineties with Rivers Como. But yeah, sure. I'm living I'm not living in the past. I'm living in the now, <laughs>
1: right? Sure. <laughs> so did you wear the Boston's shirt specifically for the interview or
2: were you always already wearing that? I think I've been wearing a Boston shirt like every day since about ninety-six. Yeah, <laughs> no, I just uh it's it's just one of those shirts where it's like one of the softest shirts I own, so it's like a go to. And uh do you guys do you do you just like come home from work and tend to put on like the same shirt for like two or three days in a row yeah maybe like five days maybe yeah or like two weeks like that's kind of where i'm at. (laughs) in fact and i'm so like i i have uh i have undiagnosed ocd but i'm getting a psyche valve soon so i can like get some closure on it and figure out ways to deal with it but i tend to like I, I go through these rituals and like, if I'm not wearing a specific shirt X amount of days, like something's off. So mental illness, man, it's cool. It's cool. Once you <laughs> recognize it, and just like, <laughs> I just live with it and be like, yeah, this is, these are my mental, Ill- my mental illnesses that don't hurt anyone. And let's, let's live our lives with them, man.
1: Yeah. I have uh, I have like
2: undiagnosed
1: mild OCD too. And my, uh, my rituals are all revolved around like, music sorting not like i don't i don't have vinyl so i don't physically sort them i just sort my mp3s and i have elaborate systems for how i listen to music and stuff and it's sort of like i just funnel it all there so it doesn't really bleed into my the rest
2: of my life very much i would probably find a piece in like watching you go through your ocd rituals is that weird (laughs) like watching someone (laughs) else's ocd is kind of calming to me because i i've witnessed i've witnessed it before and i'm like wow I, I know it's terrible to say but i like watching you go through this because it makes sort of makes me feel better about myself thing it makes me feel like not so alone or something man this is a this is a this is a hot conversation so far <laughs> i'm feeling it all right
3: <laughs> all right so let's let's go back a little bit then since we're we've already let the cat out of the bag so you're wearing a Boston shirt right now was Bo- were the Boston's the uh introduction into you uh, liking ska?
2: I live 51 miles north of Boston, right? So I'm from New Hampshire. Um so like I live in the biggest city in New Hampshire but it might as well be a suburb of Boston if that makes any sense. And yeah, I you know, I think I got into the Boston's cuz like everyone's older brother had Boston sh- shit on you know wore Boston shirts like as I was getting into punk rock, like 94, 95, I was like 15, 16 years old. And the summer, um, question, the An- question, the answers came out. I was going to Lollapalooza that year. Cause I, you know, um, Beck was playing that and, uh, Sonic Youth. And when question, the answers came out, I went to with a friend to Newbury comics record record store out here. My friend bought question. The- we all bought question, the answers, and that is like my favorite boston's album um so that's when i got into boston's and uh i was already into rancid i saw Rancid. i actually saw rancid before i saw the boston's i saw rancid in 95 march of 95 on the let's go tour for like five bucks and um yeah so that was i kind of rancid in boston's is like my introduction to sky i guess and were you already playing music at that point I was trying to, <laughs> I was, I mean, I guess I'm always trying to play music, but I was, you know, I owned a guitar and, um, you know, I was like a sophomore in high school and, uh, wasn't good at sports. And, uh, you know, I, I, I had started really falling in love with music and discovering bands and stuff. So wasn't really playing music yet. I was figuring it out. Like, what were you playing? Before you discovered
1: Boston's and Rancid,
2: learning Nirvana songs.
1: Ah, yes. And then, did you have a sort of epiphany that you wanted to play music like these bands
2: instead? Like, I fell in love with. I, I loved the Boston's. I wasn't really playing ska. I was mostly like writing funny songs. And like, I should note, I'm from um, the city that Adam Sandler grew up in. Adam and I graduated from the same high school, 13 years apart. So when I was in high school, like Sandler was King, even before Billy Madison came out. So like, I got, I got a, you know, uh, they're all going to laugh at you. Like the day it came out and like everyone worships Sandler cause he was on SNL. So I, I wrote like funny songs. I was learning Nirvana songs. And then like, I, I think, um, th- I started learning how to, like, teaching myself how to play ska, yeah, probably around the time, like, uh, when Out Come the Wolves came out. So it was probably Rancid that kind of leaned me towards there. Funny Songs was my introduction, too, to playing
1: music, because when me and my friends, one of my friends played guitar and none of the rest of us played anything, we started out like writing funny songs to him playing guitar. The song I remember the most was we had a, a, a quote unquote metal song, that wasn't metal. That was called "I Killed the Cat." My one friend played guitar, the other friend sang the song, and then my job was to take my cat and to try to kind of shake her around to get her to meow on on the microphone so we have real actual cat <laughs> meows on the song. <laughs>
3: Why I- have I never heard this? <laughs> You've been holding out on me.
2: What was the name of that band? Oh, God.
1: We had like, we cycled through band names. One of them was called After You. Like, the joke was, I named my band After You.
2: <laughs> I bet af- if After You and the cat existed to this day, I bet 2020 would have been their year. <laughs> <laughs> I know. we were. We
1: had the best tour booked of our lives.
2: Yeah, I bet. Yeah, dude, I made funny songs. Like I just made funny songs. The first song I wrote, that I don't, I don't know if it was that funny, but you know, I like writing pop songs. And like I had a crush on this girl, my friend Susan. She, she's my friend to this day. She's she's an awesome person. Um, we follow each other on Instagram, and but I wrote her this song. It was Susan, Angel from Heaven won't you take me to 7-Eleven? And it was just about her driving me to like the next town over to get Slurpees. Like that was, (laughs) again, I picked up the guitar. I was learning Kurt Cobain. I I, I obviously wanted attention from girls, you know?
1: So you got Kurt Cobain and Adam Sandler were like your two, uh,
2: your two big influences. And then, uh, yeah. And then Rivers and Nate Albert. Nice. The godfather of Scottcore, but yeah, I am, um, <laughs> dude. And then actually, actually, the funny song <laughs> stuff is like connected to the Scott, like because, um, wrote funny songs, and then also like my buddy Mike and I, we had this like fake rap group, right? Which everyone, I feel like everyone had a has had a friend at some point that made like funny rap songs, and we had this like fake rap group. We made t- we made these tapes on a um, Tascam four track with like a Yamaha RY8 like little drum machine and we use like keyboards and stuff and we made this these like funny rap tapes called East Coast Bitch and then like later on like way later on like ha- actually how I met so then I was playing in a punk ska band in like 97 and how I met the big D and the kids table guys was I didn't give them my demo tape for my punk ska band I gave them the fake rap group tape. And they thought it was like the funniest shit. They were like, who the fuck is this? And uh, my nickname was Scully B. Nuts of the East Coast bitch. So then like (laughs) I gave them this tape and there was prank phone calls between each song. And we like pitched up our voices. So we sounded like little kids. And all the songs were like gross. Like all the songs were just like, like about having sex with animals or like, having sex with old people. (laughs) Like, like there was a song called 40 ounces of milk. Like instead of drinking 40 ounces of malt liquor, it was about like some dude who would drink 40 ounces of milk and like suck it straight from the cow tit, like this whole thing. So like, uh, we made these, these these tapes. And then like later on, like big D and the kids, like became friends with those guys because of that. They, we like exchange shows, my punk ska band, five bucks We'd exchange shows at Big D cuz we both started out about the same time but it was all because of that rap that funny rap tape. And uh eventually they Big D actually made like a funny rap album out of their songs and they asked me to make prank phone calls as Scully B Nuts of the East Coast bitch so like Scully B Nuts of the East Coast bitch exists in the Big D and the kids table like world to this day. <laughs> this
1: is breaking news. <laughs> <laughs>
2: dude forever like i remember like dave would like every now and again like text me like uh like dude we're on warp tour and people keep coming over and asking like if scully be nuts of the east coast bitch is gonna be here <laughs> <laughs> so, so i was like for cool, years I, um, I didn't
3: know your name was actually nick i i you introduced yourself to me as scully
2: as scully yeah that was where the nickname had come from yeah dude <laughs> It's like, it's like kind of embar, Like this stuff is like, some of this stuff is embarrassing, you know, but it actually feels good to like say it out loud as well. And there's also like nostalgia there. Cause you know, cause again, I, I guess I met Adam as, you know, I was Scully. Yeah. Yeah.
1: What was your approach to writing scott punk songs then? Did you make funny scott punk songs or did you approach it? Was it more your Nirvana side coming out?
2: No, it was like all funny. Like I know, I feel like I knew my strengths early on and like, you know, it was like being funny. So, like, you know, we had we put out this ten song. I don't actually I don't remember how many songs. But we put out this record called Summer of '84. And also, if someone listened to that CD like straight through, like I'm also like learning how to sing and like learning how to play punk ska like on the record. So like, but the songs are like funny. They're catchy. But the songs are about like Mike Seaver from Growing Pains, and like um, uh, we had a song called Mr. T Sprinkler, which was literally about this kid in my neighbor, like this kid in my neighborhood who broke my brother's Mr. T sprinkler. So just like goofy stuff, I guess in the vein of like earlier, less than Jake, maybe like that kind of stuff. But then we, but then like you know we, I befriended uh, Mark from Big D and Steve and stuff and uh, Dave. And all those guys like liked seemingly liked to have me around because I was just like the funny guy, you know, so like and I was like a few years younger than them, than them. But I think I when I was like 19, I probably looked like I was like 14, like I just was really young looking. And um, so then uh, John Lammy, who produced Shot by Lammy and Big D's Good Luck, like he produced an EP for this band five bucks. He was called This is My Girlfriend. It was an EP. And we played shows around that the songwriting was significantly better, but it was still like, and the production was great. Cause it was, you know, John Lamy. um, we played shows throughout New England, but the shows the, or the songs were still like funny. Like there was a song called hip hop and girlfriend or hip hop and beauty. Uh, I think we did a different version of Mr. T sprinkler on there. And, you know, it always had to be like, this this I always felt like the production had to be legit. The songs had to be kind of like funny, and like cute, and and that's that's the that was around the era that I had I had befriended. Yeah, Adam. from
3: my memory, the when you would start your set, you would you would start with this kind of like chug on E, smoke on the water, rip off. Yes. And do you want yes. to tell everybody what you would chant to the audience?
2: Oh God! Or should we just leave it alone? <laughs> Uh, I don't know. um, let's just tear off the band
3: aid. It's not that bad
2: <laughs> okay.
3: It was ladies, ladies, it's time to make babies,
2: yes, now, recognize we're super young, super and also, young. Uh, super young, and also like i I wouldn't necessarily say that today, no, and also <laughs> <laughs> also like someone like questioned me on that because they were like that seems misogynistic and i was like I, when i was younger when i was 19 or whatever i was like i don't i just think the line is funny and like now i could see like why someone would take it the wrong way but like i also remember being like almost like i felt kind of hurt like oh god and like embarrassed in the time so we added this other line to it so like these dudes, these like young kids, right? At all these shows would be singing, Ladies, ladies, it's time to make babies. And then the next time around or during a break, I'd shout, Guys, guys, your dicks are small in size. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, That was my way to be like, if guys were saying, you know, chanting that ladies, time to make babies for the wrong reasons, during this like break, I could shout at them, like, Hey, you have small dicks. Why are you saying that? So it was like, I don't know. It was my way to sort of smooth it over.
3: I mean, it didn't feel any worse than like the blink One Eighty Two stuff from that era. If anything, it was, it was way tamer.
2: It was. And like this dude, when we would play, like, I mean, we played, you know, we ended up, we did a ton of shows with big D. We did a ton of shows with this band kicked in the head who like, they're amazing. Like Kicked, kicked in the head was like, I felt like they were like, I was super close to the big D guys. They were like my pals. Right. But like the kicked in the head guys felt like family. Um, So it was like, can you
3: name off the new Hampshire bands from that era?
2: Well, we were associated a lot with Boston bands. So we, so that era would be like big D and the kids table and like the fork and hand family, you know, big D put out records on fork and hand. And um, so it would be like that era of music Scott or otherwise, or like within the ballpark would be, you know, Big D and the Kid's Table, Kicked in the Head, Drexel, Superglue, The Sellouts. Uh, There was this band, Four Heads Deep. Uh, uh, Eventually, the Lozardos. The Goonies? The Goonies. I actually put out, on my label, I'd put out the Goonies record. I put out uh, Lozardos record. Um, Then there were, like, hardcore bands, like, Reach the Sky. Like, uh, man, who else was there? In the suburbs of Mass... Not so much in Boston as much. There were bands like Carpet Patrol, who ended up becoming this band Model Kit, and the dude, one of the dudes from that band, it was Alan Yang, who has gone on to be like Aziz and Zari's co-writer, and he wrote and directed episodes of Parks and Rec. I have a story about that. About. I never realized – I realized this like a like a couple months ago, and I told someone this story, and they were like, what? And I was like, did this happen? Yes, it happened. This band, Carpet Patrol, turned into this band called Model Kit. Carpet Patrol was these two guys, Matt Classic and Richard Chen. Richard Chen started going to Harvard, started Model Kit with Alan Yang, and one day – Richard Chen emailed me and was like, dude, could you play bass for us at TT the Bears? And I was like, dude, I don't know how to play bass. I barely know how to play guitar. And he said, I know. (laughs) I like your energy. (laughs) And I was like, okay. So, dude, I rehearsed at Harvard. And I remember the whole time thinking like, wow, I wonder if Rivers rehearsed in one of these rooms. Because I was so obsessed with Weezer. And um, I rehearsed. I learned like there's six, like six or eight songs or whatever. And then I did this show with them at TT's. And I just remember like playing, and I kind of felt out of place. I only rehearsed with them once. I didn't really know those guys very well. And at one point during the set, someone just shouted out, "Who the fuck is that guy?" And like pointed at me, and I was like, "I'm Nick." And they're like, "Oh, this is Nick from Five Bucks." And like, no one there knew who the fuck we were. You know, it was like. But it happened. And then um, a couple years ago, someone messaged me and was like, do you know Alan Yang from uh, Model Kit Like, wrote a bunch of Parks and Rec episodes or something? And I Googled it, and I was like, oh, wow. All right, that's cool. He's successful. Awesome. You know, <laughs> I was like. Was Alan Yang also
1: involved with Masters of None? Yes. Then? Because the reason I ask is because there's a Scott joke in that show. And
2: I'm wondering if, if he was behind it. I'm going to guess probably. Uh, but yeah, he was Yeah, he was in that band.
1: Do you remember what the Ska joke was? So the Ska joke is that uh, a woman that Aziz's character is dating. Turns out she used to be in a Ska band. I can't remember the band name, but it's just a ridiculous Ska pun band name. And I think her mom
2: shows Aziz the, a photo of her with like a horn or something.
3: <laughs> That's the whole
2: joke? They were like a power pop band. I've got their, I got some of their CD. I don't, I haven't thrown away like anything like from that era. Like I've got pictures of, I've actually got physical photos of Adam.
3: I have pictures of myself from that first show we played together. um, Wearing a five bucks shirt that you gave me. And the funny thing, the funny thing about it was for some reason we hit it off immediately at the beginning of the show when we were like loading in and like setting up merch. Yes. And then, I think you, maybe you offered me a shirt or something, but you only had medium and I'm really tall, but I was super skinny at the time. So I was like, Oh, I can fit into a medium. And so I just like, like squeezed into this shirt. And I feel like that was the beginning of me, like wearing shirts that were too small, but still wearing like gigantic baggy cargo shorts. So I think you're, you're to blame for that.
2: That's fashion forward, (laughs) man. I gave you a look.
3: Yeah, you did.
2: Isn't it amazing, like, you know, the internet can be so brutal, and uh, you just see such nasty stuff, but, you know, I deleted my Facebook last August, which honestly was the second best decision I ever made in my life, was getting rid of Facebook, but I also knew, like, I wanted to keep in touch with people, but because of all this social media, like, Adam and I have been, like, I feel like it's, we've just remained friends, like, totally, that couldn't have happened 20 years ago quite in the same way like no. so it's it's really these are like the nice moments i'm very grateful for it what was the number one best decision you made uh quit drinking i'm sober right. I, don't, I don't drink alcohol yeah quit i uh, know wow that's fucking crazy to yeah november 3rd 2015 congratulations so I'm fi- yeah i'm like five and a half years sober
3: i only say that's crazy because the last time we hung out in person you were you were fucking
2: hammered damn <laughs>
3: do you remember that show at all
2: was it in providence yes and i uh insane clown posse was playing next door to yes. you guys yes. you were guys That's... you guys were playing at the met and insane clown posse was playing at lupo's
3: did you come over and watch part of the insane clown posse set with us yeah what What do you remember about that i want to see if your memory is the same.
2: I just remember you and I like went in or like went towards the door and we were just like watching it. And I think I just remember like turning and locking eyes with you. And like, we both were just like, this is different. <laughs> you know, it was just, like, <laughs> like, this is not our world. And like, but we were just like, wow. Okay. Cause there was like these two, like, they had like backup dancer type guys like dressed as like the hatchet clown. Who were like yeah. doing this dance move, and we were just like, "Okay, like this is just different than what's about to happen next door at the Link Eighty show."
3: Yeah, and, th- th- and then they were just—they had like pallets of Fago, and they had all these creative ways to like throw the two liters of Fago into the audience. Yep. Like I remember Aaron Nagel was just like amazed by it. He was just like, "They do all these weird things, like they're like like shaking them up and spinning them, and then like knocking the cap off so that it flies." <laughs> Like he was amazed. And then the other thing that I remember was that our show had ended and we were loading out and all the kids were pouring out of the insane clown posse show, all soaked in fago with their clown paint coming off. And I just remember this kid in a hoodie walking by with just his makeup all smeared down his face and looking up at the marquee over the door for our show and going, Oh, Link 80 played today. And then just kept walking. And I just remember thinking, Oh wow. We've got like some crossover with, insane clown posse
1: detroit's 80s early 90s ska band was a gangster fun and uh they those guys had played on a couple tracks or one track maybe of an insane clown posse song so so there is a ska connection there so there's a ska connection to insane clown posse and they must like ska
3: there's another ska connection with insane clown posse let's hear it the bass player for we are the union is their sound person wow yeah or a sound engineer in some sort of way so they're, they're basically a ska band is what I'm saying. <laughs> Five books was always a three piece, right?
2: When we started out, it was three of us. And then my buddy Corey B played trombone, but he didn't play like every show. Right. And then, so for the first three years, it was like, it was uh, from 97 to about 2000 ish, 2001 ish. It was like, th- or, yeah, from 97 to 2000, basically. It was, there was three of us. We were three piece and sometimes Corey B would join us on trombone. And then the last three years, three years of the band, three and a half years of the band, we were a four piece with seldom trombone. Um, Jeff Mardanus or AKA Jeff Poot, AKA Jeff Lizardo. He played lead guitar. So we were like, a, we were a four piece. And, uh, Dave Lizardo joined five bucks on bass, um, <clears throat> because Jack, uh, the drummer from the Lizardos, had passed away from cancer, so like they weren't playing. And then, basically, half of five bucks became ha- the lizardos Half of Lizardos became five bucks. And the last three years was our strongest in terms of like the shows we were playing, the, the little tours that we were going on, and and uh, it was a lot of fun. Like we got to we got to play the hometown Throwdown, and then we did two other shows with the Bostones. Besides that.
1: Oh, nice! How did you get that? Was did you were you friends with them, or was this just from the promoter?
2: We just like Adam saw it. Like Adam was, Adam I think understood. Like I was just a workhorse man. Like I just had this like, I don't think we were like a great band, but we were just like really fun, had a lot of energy, and I just hustled. Like I just hustled, and I like talking to people, and I you know I'm per- I I think I'm personable and just try to put out fun energy and. I think um, that translated and it, because we were a good band and like we had a little following in the Northeast, like it just opportunities found ourselves found itself. But uh, I definitely like I think Dickie, I got the attention of Dickie because um, sometimes he'd be outside of like shows at Bill's Bar and stuff like just like hanging or he like knew the door guy, uh, this guy Mark Vieira. Or, like, I, cause I just remember once like walking up to Dickie and I was just like, I called him dad. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he was like, I see the humor in me. Like I might as well be like the age of your dad. But if I ever did have a kid, he wouldn't be half the asshole that you are. <laughs> and like, but like he would say it in his Dickie Barrett, like, you know, Boston's, you know, like the, 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 the charming, bostonian kind of dickhead way and that's how we talk that's how you make friends like <clears throat> you know when when it was like when a lot of like anti-bullying thing was happening a couple of years ago i understood it but i was also like but that's how i've made my best friends like they bullied me <laughs> you know like um cuz it's like smart ass and sarcasm like that sort of thing um i'm not advocating bull- bullying um but uh so i think like they were aware of us and then um uh joe sib who was managing the boston's at the time joe sib asked uh anthony from kicked in the head like hey who who would be a good fit for the boston show in new hampshire and like without missing a beat he was like five bucks and he was like oh okay and he was like he like looked us up and he's like oh yeah these guys seem legit and he was like yeah so joe sib called me and was like you want to play the Hampton beach casino with the boston's i was like uh yes you know like i was like (laughs) and then he was like yeah it's all good like anthony suggested you i think dickie said you guys are cool so like let's do it you know just like be cool and like i'm sure we can get you some more opportunities and like sure as shit dickie asked us to play the throwdown that night like you know for the december shows and then joe put us on a show in hartford connecticut with uh with the boston's and the riddling kids a couple months later when we had put out a new ep which was really cool and then coincidentally you know i was doing stand-up i started doing stand-up back in 2000 and um when did i start doing stand-up 2009 2010 and uh i got passed by the laugh factory and the first show i did at the laugh factory in la just coincidentally fucking joe sib hosted it (laughs) it was like what the fuck and and Mike from the Street Dogs, the first Dropkicks record, he was doing two songs that night. So it was just like, man, this is crazy um, how this all came about. And uh, I talked to Mike that night because it was like Five Bucks had covered a Bruisers song. And, you know, there was a guy, uh, Johnny Johnny Rio, who was in the Bruisers, like was Street Dogs in the Street Dogs. So like he, it was just like all these kind of connections when I was doing stand-up, you know, so.
3: How did that transition happen from uh, music? I mean, they I guess they overlapped, the transition from music to doing stand-up.
2: Yeah, um, well, that was the thing, was like, Five Bucks was funny, right? So it was like, yeah. every show we played, almost every opportunity we got, like, I just from all my friends, like the Big D guys, the kick-in-the-head guys, especially the Big D guys, Dave McQueen from Big D and Mark Flynn. And I, and I should say, Mark Flynn from Big D, man, he is like a hero of mine. Like, he taught me a lot about my voice. He taught me a lot about songwriting, and I just always admired and, and looked up to him. Um, but those guys would always be like, dude, the music's good. You're a fucking comedian, man. Because everyone who sees Five Bucks Plays would like, they'd be into the music, everything's a good time, but they'd always just like wait to see what I was going to say between songs. So, like, a lot of those guys from those punk ska days like would just put it in my head like dude try like you're a comedian you're a comedian and like uh I thought about it and in fact I actually have on tape like Dickie Barrett like on a videotape telling me like oh yeah you're a comedian or something I gotta find that tape I put it on my Instagram like a couple years ago but anyway um uh I just had it in the back of my head and then I wasn't playing music anymore like after five bucks i did a band. i had a band called air hockey champion which was like power pop with a keyboard um and dave pino from damone and uh waltham he plays in andrew wk's band now he produced the air hockey champion record did that that kind of fizzled out and then i was just like all right i'm gonna try stand up so i did um and i did it for I've done it for just before the pandemic started. I hit my uh, ten-year anniversary or eleven-year anniversary doing stand-up, um, but I'm not that into it anymore. I, I just I don't see myself doing it now that I have, uh, you know, I've got a very demanding day job that I've kind of fell back in love with, and I feel it's very important the work I do during the day. And then um, a lot most of my time is spent on nights and weekends doing Wicked Joyful, and then trying to work on my band. So I I kind of fell out of love with stand-up. In terms of the material you did as a
1: stand-up though, did you have any stories or any references about punk or ska stuff
2: or bands? I didn't ever really talk about playing in a band in my stand-up, but I did. My, my reoccurring joke was I played in a ska punk band in the nineties and it's the least embarrassing thing about me. <laughs> <laughs> and the the reason why I said that was because for a little for a while it seemed, oh, I would see a lot of stand-ups like using ska as a punchline, and it pissed me off like so hard because I love ska music and like I just have such nostalgia for that time period of my life of playing ska punk and like going to ska punk shows. Second to that. This was around the time this was around the time when like a lot of comedians and rightfully so I get it, you know, talking about like woke, being woke and like what's right and all this stuff, which is I'm on board. Like that's what but like the same comedians that poke fun of Ska were, you know, also like being on the right side of history and like speaking up about racial injustice and stuff. And it's like, yo, why the fuck are you making fun of ska when like the in to- like all this music is like about racial injustice and like anti-racist action. And so I just didn't understand like why that type of comic was using it as a punchline. Like it should be celebrated.
1: Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, I think most of the
2: people that do that make fun of ska,
1: like don't know anything about it. And I feel like it's this really strange phenomenon of like, I don't even know, I don't, I don't know anything else where people don't know anything about something and think that it's really funny to make fun of it. Like, don't you want to know something about the thing you're making fun of?
2: Yeah, and also, they're not, I, I feel like they're not, like, not only do they not know about it, like, they're kind of poking fun at a version of its culture that they don't understand, which is, to me, it's just, it's like, hard, it's like heavy ignorance.
1: Exactly, yeah.
2: It's it's heavy ignorance, which is what they also rally about in their own brand of comedy. It's like, so I, I don't know, it just like bummed me out. So like, but that was my line. Was like it was the least embarrassing thing about me. The irony is, you know, if you listen to a lot of my band, my ska punk bands earlier stuff, like, oh shit, it's embarrassing, man. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like we like we had a, we had a song called "I Want to Fuck the Spice Girls." Like, come on, like, like. <laughs> How
1: did that joke do with audiences?
2: You know, it was just it was just kind of a line. Like, it was just kind of like a, a a line that you'd, like, throw in when I was, like, talking about myself, maybe alongside, like, self-deprecating stuff or whatever. It was one of those things where it's like, oh, it's a good tweet. Maybe I'll, when it comes up in my act, like, or something comes up during a show, I can just, like, toss it in there, like, things about myself, you know? But that's the other thing, like, during pandemic time, you know, it's like I look back at a lot of stand-up I did, and it got to a point where I was really re- – heavily relying on self-deprecating humor. And I look back and that was not good for my mental health, you know, driving two, three hours to some gig, you know, for a night in like, you know, somewhere in the middle of Maine or like Western mass driving alone, getting on stage and even, or even doing a weekend, like doing a weekend with Tom Green at Vermont comedy club. So I'm performing in front of, you know, five shows, 300, 250 people, 300 people at each show And like, I'm saying disparaging things about myself that may or may not be true. And then after those five shows, I'm driving home alone for four hours that Sunday with like these negative things, negative thoughts about myself, like replaying in my head just to elicit laughter. Like that's not good on my mental health. And I did it for 11 years and then all of a sudden it stopped. And now during the pandemic, I've gotten to focus on like playing, you know, playing my music with uh, Donna Hurt and also uh, creating this like fun pop culture action figure artwork um, with through wicked joyful. Like that's the stuff I want to do. And if anything, it's like, if it, it just, it feels good, man, my self-esteem has never been better. And not just because of the attention, the that wicked joyful has brought me, but I feel like just like meeting Adam and eight link, the link 80 guys and, and, and the big D guys back in the late nineties, Through Wicked Joyful, I feel like I'm meeting my people again. And like I feel like I'm I'm feeling like I belong I'm I'm finding my tribe and a community that like believes in me and I believe in them and uh it it just feels good. It's positive energy, man.
1: I'm curious though, as a person with a history of music and everything, did music material make it into your stand up act much? Hell
2: yeah, dude. All of this uh, everything we've been talking about kind of drove like my first two or three years of stand-up. Like I I I um I made like I'm going back, I made like funny rap songs in different like characters. So like <laughs> I had this one rap song. I actually uh uh I did this I did this video, it was like Paul's laserdisc collection. And um it was just this dude in a basement and I shaved my beard so I had like a mustache. And there was like this kind of dark hip hop beat. And it was just like, I was just wearing like a skin tight, like Ghostbusters shirt and white corduroy pants. And just like the song was just like, my name is Paul. These are my laser discs. Yes. My laser discs watch a movie with me. And he just like slowly mon- monotone, like rapped about movies. And then like, if you Google Paul's laser disc collection, You'll see what I'm talking about. <laughs> but aside from that, and then like that got the ear of MC Lars, who I had bumped into like two years prior and we became like pen pals. He saw the Paul's Laserdisc collection video and was like, dude, this is a smash and I got to put you on my mixtape. So I'm on a MC Lars mixtape with uh like KRS-One and Weird Science, the, dr- the drummer from Coheed and like all these other like rappers. My life is just taking all these weird twists and turns. But then the other, like, funny musical comedy I did, I made this song called I Love You, Sally Struthers, and I shot a music video for it with Sally Struthers and, like, kissed her on the mouth. How how did that come about? How did you get connected to her? Dating app. (laughs) (laughs) No, um, we my little brother is a theater actor he's a broadway like dancer and he was doing this off broadway summer stock like summer theater in a a gunkwit maine and Sally does it every year and um the first year he worked with Sally you know she he was like my brother's a stand up she was like i love stand up and i want to meet him and then patrick was like dude Sally wants to meet you and i was like he's like you should do something with her and i was like tell her I want to write a song about how much I love her and I want to shoot a music video about it. And he was like, done. So he calls me the next day and he's like, dude, she's in. And I was like, what? He's like, she, you have to shoot it on Sunday. You can't mention Rob Reiner. And I was like, deal. So that. (laughs) You
0: can't mention Rob Reiner. So I was
2: like, deal. (laughs) So I wrote this song about just how she's like my celebrity crush. And like, I want to have, I want her to have my babies. And, um, i, I want to you know make love to her in every way possible and like she was down she heard the song she said let's do it so son- that's sunday morning we shot the video so like then like sally became like a friend of the family like she's like my my brother and i my brother especially owes a lot to her like he shot um he's in a Cohen brothers movie and, uh, he had nowhere to stay when he was shooting it and he didn't want to blow, he didn't have a SAG card yet. So he didn't want to like blow his pay. I'm like, so Patrick calls me and he's like, dude, he's like, I'm going to be shooting this thing in LA for like a month. I have to do rehearsals. It's this big, like dance number with Channing Tatum. And, and I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, I got cast in the Coen Brothers movie. And I was like, or he said, Ethan and Joel casted me. I go, who the fuck is Ethan and Joel? And he's like, Coen Brothers. And I was like, oh shit. and then. So, like, he need a place to stay. And I was like, dude, have you talked to Sally? And he was like, no, but I should call her, right? I'm like, you absolutely should. Dude, Sally Struthers put up my little brother for a month in her house while he (laughs) shot this movie. And then I was like, well, shit, if you're crashing with Sally, I'm doing stand-up. I'm coming out to visit. So, like, I got booked at the Laugh Factory and the Comedy Store. Not Comedy. Yeah, Comedy Store. I don't know if I did the comedy store on that run, but I did uh, Ice House. I didn't stay with Sally, but like I went over there, and um, we watched uh, we watched a we watched like a Shia LaBeouf movie and held hands, (laughs) (laughs) which like you know what you know what Kanye's got a good life, but Kanye can't say he watched a Shia LaBeouf movie while holding hands with Sally Struthers. I can say that. No one can take that away from me, ever. (laughs)
1: <laughs> do you remember what movie though
2: um i think it was uh i'm looking up shia LaBouffe's it was transformers no it was a weird, <laughs> it was kind of like it wasn't holes but it it felt like a movie like holes like it was kind of an offbeat movie who the fuck's gonna remember what movie you're watching when you're holding hands with sally struthers yeah, <laughs> Looking over my shoulder, looking at her Emmys, man. And that's not a <laughs> euphemism.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you haven't already, subscribe to my newsletter at erincarns.substack.com. You will get episodes of the In Defense of Ska podcast and other content sent directly to your inbox. If you would like to order my book, In Defense of Ska, you can go to Amazon, request it at your favorite indie bookstore or library, or go to clashbooks.com. And on that note, we leave you by saying, Ska now more than ever. Thank you.